0: Thank you, Michelle. Thank you. And I'm so excited to be here to talk about this topic. It's one that I am very passionate about. And I uh, hope that, you know, this talk might inspire um, you to become passionate about it as well, because even though not all of uh, your IBD patients that you're taking care of will have ostomies, a lot of them will, either temporary or um, permanent. So I have no disclosures. How do I do this? So the things that we're going to go through are listed up here, so we're going to talk about the definition, the different types, how common they are, some important topics about where we want to place the stoma, and then spend some time on complication and other troubleshooting issues. Um, So just to get some definitions down, because we often use the words ostomy and stoma interchangeably. And for all practical purposes, that's true, you can. But technically, the ostomy is the surgically created opening uh, between the hollow organ and the body surface. uh, And then the stoma is actually the end part of the organ that you're actually seeing um, that's coming through the abdominal wall. But you can use them um, pretty much interchangeably. Just a short, funny story. So when I, after undergrad, I went and lived for a year in China and back in 2003, and then I just went back for the first time a couple, like, a year and a half ago. And when I was there the first time, there was no smartphones or anything like that. So this time, I kept seeing, I saw this Beijing stomatological hospital, and I thought, wow, that's, like, really cool. I'm going to go, like, use my broken Mandarin and see if I can get in there and find out what they do there. So I went, and I... Got in there, and then I f- quickly realized that this was not a stoma hospital. Um, the Greek word for stoma is actually mouth, um, and so it was actually a dental hospital. <laughs> so, But <laughs> I tried. <laughs> so in terms of um, ostomies, we're, I'm going to limit this talk to just intestinal diversion because that's the type of diversion that our patients will have. So it can come from various parts of the intestine, so either the ileum for an ileostomy, the colon for a colostomy, sometimes a jejunostomy. We try to avoid that whenever possible. They can be an end um, or a loop stoma, which we'll get into that difference. And then also there are continent um, ostomies, which uh, we don't even do them at our, our place anymore. There's only a few places in the country, so we're not really going to talk about those. And then they can be temporary or permanent. So you can actually... Um, have any kind of version of this, so a temporary loop ileostomy or temporary loop colostomy. You can have a permanent end ileostomy, all sorts of versions of this, but it's characterized by um, where that part of the uh, exteriorized bowel is coming from. So the difference between an end and a loop, and I uh, encourage you to know this difference. Oftentimes patients don't even know which type they have. Um, So an end ileostomy, there's going to be one hole, and a loop ileostomy is going to have two holes. Sometimes in a loop, The second hole is a little difficult to find um, because we try to put it a little lower at times. So it's important to know and the patient knows what you have because some things are normal with a loop but not normal with an end and things like that. So it is important to, to know the difference. I like to go through a little bit of the history because I find it really interesting. Uh, Prior to the 1700s, there was really only sporadic accounts of ostomy surgery. Um, If a patient had an intestinal perforation, you basically closed the abdomen, hoped for the best, hoped they didn't get septic and die. Um, And the idea to intentionally do a stoma was actually because they found that patients got spontaneous fistulas, um, anterior cutaneous fistulas that came to the skin, and they survived, and they didn't get that sick. Um, I bet it was probably a Crohn's disease patient. Um, in, those, in those first instances. Obviously, though, mortality rates were very high, and um, it was really hard to advance anything with that before um, anesthesia and aseptic uh, technique. So the first document, our literature described the first colostomy in 1710, and then the first documented um, colostomy was in a three-day-old infant um, with an imperforate anus. They did follow that patient. He survived and, and lived... Um, well, until about 845. Um, but we don't actually have a lot of data on how they managed stomas back then. Um, so for these pediatric patients, I you know doubt they had little teddy bears on their, on their bags. And then in the early 1800s, um, believe it or not, they actually preferred to place the stomas in the lumbar area because they were able to get to the posterior wall um, of the colon and just bring it to the surface without involving the peritoneum, which made the uh, operations simpler. Sometimes they'd even use inguinal stomas. So you can imagine that these would be extremely difficult for a patient to take care of themselves because how do you take care of something that you can't see and that you can't reach? Um, so once we got an ASAP technique and our surgical um, uh, techniques advanced, then we were able to use our standard approach um, on the anterior abdomen. In the late 19th century, Dr. John Brown introduced the first ileostomy as a therapy for ulcerative colitis patients. Early construction of stomas were um, almost always skin level, and those caused a lot of problems um, because they would cause very significant skin breakdown and a lot of um, morbidity for the patients. So they were really only reserved uh, for very severe and refractory um, IBD patients. In the 1800s, we got anesthesia, so that improved everything. And then in the late 1800s, they um, had the idea to use a support rod when they're trying to create a loop biliostomy. Um, So that actually gives time for the ostomy to granulate down to the abdominal wall without retracting um, inward and allowed it to stay protruding. So that was a huge advance um, in Uh, patients being able to pouch um, pouch their appliance easier and then um, allowed complete fecal um, diversion. And then in the 50s, Dr. Brian Brook and, uh, surgical maturation became the standard of, core, of care where we everted the stoma and then sutured it to the abdominal skin. The surgeon that I work with, um, oh, by the way, I'm a physician assistant who works in colorectal surgery. <laughs> uh, so the, physician, the surgeon that I work with when we're in that part of the operation, you know, his, he uses it a verb and he says, okay, brook it. Uh, so we thank him for that. In the 1920s, it was actually a surgeon-patient collaboration that developed some rubber appliances that were actually had to be glued onto the skin. You can see they're quite um, bulky and um, would be very hard to conceal those, so I'm glad they've made a lot of advances there. These are just some other um, options. Some new technology that might be coming down the pipeline, which is kind of interesting um, up at the University of Michigan. They're actually using the new 3D printing technology, so you can see... This patient here has an abdomen that would be very hard to pouch that stoma, and so um, they're actually using 3D scanners, and they're creating um, customized wafers for patients, and so it basically gets every little nook and cranny of their specific divots and incisions and things like that. Um, Obviously, this isn't going to be needed for every patient, but um, it's kind of a cool technology that will really help a lot of patients if it becomes mainstream. And then in the 50s, uh, Dr. Rupert Turnbull was um, a physician who actually works to create the role of an enterostomal therapist. Today, we're kind of more familiar with the WOCN, or the Wound Ostomy Incontinence Nurses. Um, This is a a nurse specialist that just involves um, stomas and not wounds. Um, And then this was really important because this was the same time that preoperative marking became the standard of care. Um, just some fun facts. There's a lot of famous um, ostomates that are out there, and um, a few of the ones to highlight. So, Dwight Eisenhower had IBD and Crohn's disease, and he had an ostomy. Marvin Bush, um, son of the George H.W. Bush, <laughs> um, also had IBD and an ostomy, um, as well as uh, Rolf Bernerski, who's a pro um, NFL football player. And then, more recently, just last year, there's a professional baseball player, Jake Dietman, who plays for the Rangers who has ulcerative colitis, and he was really um, open on social media about going through a um, three-part J-pouch procedure and his ostomy, and he did a lot of work um, with kids and things like that, which was really cool to see, because as you know, ostomies have a lot of stigma out there, and so, um, you know, more um, people who are talking about it and open about it's really important for our younger IBD patients especially, knowing that they might need an ostomy in the future. In terms of incidence and prevalence, uh, it's actually really hard to um, know exactly how many people are living with ostomies in the United States and abroad. Uh, we think it's between 650 and 800,000. It's difficult because we have so many people that have temporary diversions for just a few months, both for IBD and for, um, mostly for rectal cancer or for diverticulitis. Um, and so we do think, though, about 120,000 um, ostomy surgeries are performed each year. Um, Just a little bit about stoma site marking because I think it's so important. There's been study after study that show that if you do um, proper preoperative site marking by a trained clinician, um, a patient's going to have less complications. So it's going to be more likely that they're going to be independent in their stoma care. It's going to give them predictable wear times, fewer complications, and just allow them to get back to their normal activities quicker. Uh, The thing that I... Think that's part of that. That is even more important is that this allows time for education preoperatively, which decreases the patient anxiety, can even um, shorten length of hospital stay, which we all know everyone's measured on these days, um, and it allows you to assess the patient while sitting, standing, lying down, and um, getting their whole thing. Uh, to think about it as opposed to when they're on the operating table and you can't, you know, make them move at that time. We usually mark both sides, um, and then even if we're just thinking about a stoma, we will mark them even if we don't need to use it. <clears throat> this is a busy slide, so I'm not going to go over it, but the main one to look at is the middle column. So these are the things we're trying to avoid scars, wrinkles, folds, bony promises, um, things like that, so that we can give that patient the best chance um, to have a stoma that's easy to take care of. We generally do try to place a stoma within the rectus muscle because that's going to give it more support. And hopefully we're going to pre, um, present, uh, prevent uh, peristomal hernias, which we'll see later, are very, very common. Um, as I said, preoperatively marking <coughs> marketing by a trained individual is um, ideal, but sometimes that's not possible either in an emergency situation or for whatever Time constraint, So I call this the down and dirty quick way to do it. So if you take the umbilicus, the top of the mons pubis, and then your iliac crest and converge in the middle and find the muscle, that's going to give you your best chance to get it in a good spot if, um, if they haven't been marked um, beforehand. In terms of indications for surgery, obviously inflammatory bowel disease is a big one. And then the other two that are the most common is rectal cancer and, and diverticular disease. So just a little bit of appliances and accessories. Um, obviously, we have our wonderful wound um, and ostomy nurses who know everything and, you know, anything about this. So this isn't, you know, exhausted so that you're going to necessarily be giving specific advice about, the, um, about appliances and what to do. But I think it's really important because you're seeing these patients. And number one, sometimes it's a super easy fix. So if it's something that you know, you can fix something um, relatively easy if you know that information and can give it to the patient. But also um, for the patient, it's very, very often that many healthcare providers know nothing about ostomies at all. And so they, um, you know, even if you just have a little bit of knowledge and that patient will pick up on that, like they're going to appreciate that because they're very used to going to other providers. And even, um, even surgeons and other people that are GI involved don't know a lot about ostomies. So if you can um, provide patient that support, um, it's really important. So terminology is important, especially when you're trying to figure out the problem from the patient. So in in general, there is always going to be a bag, a collection bag, and then there's going to be what's called the flange, wafer, or base plate. They can be a one-piece where it's all stuck together and doesn't come out, or it can be a two-piece where the part that sticks to the skin stays there and just the back could come off. They can be closed or open-ended, so you can see um, on the um, left-handed picture on the right, that's closed. So those would generally be for colostomy patients because they may only um, have a bowel movement or output maybe once a day or um, every other day. So they can actually just take that bag off and throw the whole thing away. The open-ended ones are more for um for any, but for ileostomy patients especially, because they're going to be emptying four or five, six times a day, and then they'll have um, filters versus no filters if. Um that are, there's a carbon filter that will filter out gas and um, odor. And then the important part to remember and for patients to understand is that no one size fits all. So I always prep patients with, you know, whatever you go home with at the hospital, that's not the end game. There are so many things that we can try, and we just keep working at it until we find what's going to work for them. And um, we just have to um, do it by a patient-by-patient basis important thing to remember is that they are all designed to be air and water tight and they should be odor free. So if you're seeing a patient and they're leaking all the time or they're saying that they feel like it's, you know, it smells all the time, something's not right. So many patients just live with that and they think that that's the way that it is and it's not going to get any better, but it's not the case. So it's really important for them to know that. Uh, There are um, endless accessories with preps, powders, liquids, all of that, that we can use um, to get them to that point where they're um, most functional. And then also, um, you and the ostomates should know that for the first six weeks, their stoma actually does... Change in size. I try to warn them that pre-surgery because sometimes the they wake up from surgery and they go, "Wow, like what is this thing? Like that's huge." But it goes down almost by fifty percent in size a lot of the time. So um, important to know that. Um, in terms of when you're looking at a stoma, it should be red, pink, moist, slightly elevated from the surrounding skin, and um, you know shouldn't have any major color changes in the um, in the mucosa. And we're going to kind of get into a lot of the ostomy complications because they're extremely common, unfortunately, and they really do impact the patient's quality of life. Uh, these are some of the complications we're going to talk about. Um, you can see that peristomal hernia and then the skin problems are by far the, uh, the most common so stoma necrosis, if it happens, um, which is very rare, thankfully, usually happens within the first few days after surgery. And, um, and obviously, this isn't a great picture, but if you've got black necrotic tissue, um, the really only option is to go back to the operating room and revise it. But like I said, thankfully, that doesn't happen very often. Um, what happens more often is what we call a mucocutaneous separation, where... The surrounding skin actually separates from the stoma itself, and the reason I, I um, talk about this is because it's um, more common with certain people who have impaired wound healing. So, you know, think about our patients: chronic steroid use, infection, malnutrition, immunosuppression. That's pretty much every IBD patient that's you know going to surgery. So. Um, the other reason it can happen is if during the op- um, operation the abdominal wall opening is made a little bit larger than the bowel. Sometimes we try to use a port site or an incision site that may be a little too big. Um, that can cause a, a separation or excess tension on the suture line. Um, we do try to prevent this from happening by not using convexity, which um, actually pushes down around the stoma skin to get it to... Uh, pro um, to protrude out a little bit more, so we try to avoid that in the early period and then obviously optimizing nutrition and smoking um, counseling can be important as well. It's actually really easy to fix. Um, Here's a picture. Kind of looks, you know, not great. It can be kind of all around the stoma or just a small part, but we actually just put some powder in there and pouch over it and give it some time. And this was just after two weeks that I was seeing this patient regularly. um, Some hypergranulation tissue developed. So then we did some silver nitrate, more silver nitrate. And then by week six, It was completely healed. That stoma looks beautiful. (laughs) Um, The other um, problem that you can have is retraction. So this can happen for a number of reasons. It can just be from some mild ischemia or some stoma stenosis. The most common cause is actually, though... um, in a patient that is under underweight and they get a stoma and now they can eat and they 're gaining weight, so it 's not so much that the stoma is retracting in, but the abdominal wall is retracting out so um, that can actually be relatively easily fixed if it 's mild with what I was talking about a convex wafer where that 's going to push down around that surrounding skin and cause that stoma to pop out some more and then um, if um, uh, if we can't fix it with um, conservative measures, sometimes we do have to go back and, and um, redo the stoma. The opposite to retraction is actually stoma prolapse. So this is um, also fairly common. Uh, I think what's important for you to remember and for the patient to remember is that their bowel is not falling out of their body, even though they think it is, um, because it's still actually fixated to the abdominal wall. You have to think of it as like an inverted sock coming out. So it's actually just telescoping or intercepting out, and it's still fixated. So it, it can come out pretty far, but it's not going to like keep falling out forever, which the patients freak out about. Um, and then this can happen because you have mobile mesentery, um, a lot of coughing or intra-abdominal pressure can cause it, or if, again, if that opening's too big, it allows it to to, and to suscept out. So uh, sometimes it freaks a lot of people out to see stoma <laughs> prolapses, and I get that. Um, but mainly if it's mild, it's usually just a mild uh, cosmetic concern. Patients don't like it, but if it's not causing them pain or problems we, or pouching difficulties, we generally we don't do anything about it. Even if it's moderate, we still don't really do anything about it um, unless it's causing them difficulty with pouching. Obviously, the patient on the right is a different case. This is actually one of our patients that sat in our waiting like showed up in our clinic, sat in our waiting room for like an hour to be seen, and then I went in there and I was like, oh. We're going to go to the operating room right now. So um, that's obviously um, in a situation that is severe and needs to be revised. Uh, The other thing that's funny, so believe it or not, um, putting um, sugar on an ostomy will oftentimes um, reduce, uh, reduce it if it's prolapse. So I've told many ER residents or other providers or even patients at home Go get a bunch of sugar and dump it on. This is a little wrong. It's not usually a spoonful. You need a little more than that. Um, But the osmotic properties of it will actually um, often cause it to reduce down. And then um, the same with that. Putting ice on it can actually cause it to retract. We tell patients, you know, take your appliance off, um, uh, relax, sometimes a warm bath. Just getting that abdominal um, muscles to relax can often cause it to, to go back in. And then, like I said, obviously, if it's symptomatic and they're having pain, they're having problems um, pouching it or things like that, then um, we'll surgically revise it. So... In terms of hernia, this was the other one that's probably the most common um, problem. And by definition, a stoma is actually an intentionally created hernia because what's a hernia? It's bowel obtruding through the abdominal wall. Well, we just created a hernia. Um, but what we're talking about is that over time, the intra abdominal pre- pressures can force tissue fatigue and actually enlarge the um, stoma or the abdominal opening. And so on the left here, you can see that that is. Um, Does not have a hernia, but that's just to show what what it looks like from the inside. And then on the right here, you can see the stomas on the left side. And then if that abdominal opening opens up, the bowel can actually herniate um, through there. So it actually is super common. affects up to 50% of patients in one year, according to some studies. And um, like I said, forceful coughing. Um, Sometimes patients, you know, might be weightlifters or things like that. And then the age-old wound infection, old age obesity that affects everything um, increases it as well. In terms of management, um, usually we start very conservatively with just a hernia support belt that's going to allow an opening for the stoma, so output will still come out. We'll modify their appliance. We'll have them avoid heavy lifting and strenuous activity that might worsen it. Um, If they do have a lot of problems or pain, we will surgically correct it. We generally try to avoid it whenever we we can or delay it because um, we actually They don't have the best results when we try to either locally repair it or if we do a larger surgery we have to use mesh and um, still it it doesn't always fix it. Sometimes the fix is actually to put it on the other side of their their abdomen. Um, And then just to talk a little bit about um, skin complications, so the peristomal skin is just right around the the stoma, obviously. And ileostomy patients generally have the most complications because the effluent from the small um, bowel is more caustic um, and irritating to the skin than um, than the from um, the colon. And then in some surveys, as high as over 60% of neostomy patients had peristomal skin irritation that went unrecognized. So that's the important part of that um, large number. Most or a lot of patients they don't seek. Uh, help for skin problems. They think it's just normal. They think that that's just the way it's going to be because that's the way it's always been and no one's told them otherwise. Um, And so it's important for you to know and for the patient to know that the skin around the stoma should look and feel just like the skin on the rest of the patient's abdomen. So the left here, that's a beautiful skin, looks just like um, anywhere else. On the right, this was a patient that came to see me and I said, so how long has the skin been irritated? And she said, what are, you, what are you talking about? <laughs> She's like, this is the way it's always looked. And I was like, oh, okay. So we, you know, we had to make some changes. Um, with any dermatology um, uh, thing, you have to think about uh, what might be causing it. So it's not just leaks. Um, so you can think about all these different... Um, uh, options. One of the biggest and best things that I do with a patient is I watch how they change their pouch and what they do. So often it's just they're making um, a mistake in how they're um, changing it. So sometimes you can fix a lot of things just by asking them how they, how they do things. Uh, The biggest mistake I see is cutting the hole too big, so you don't want to see any skin at all when you're putting a pouch on. Even a little bit of skin is an opportunity for um, liquid or any output to undermine that seal and easily cause a leak. So by far, that's the biggest problem. This patient on the right is a patient of mine that when she came to see me, she was at a nursing home, and she kept getting worsening and worsening skin problems, and they kept telling her, oh, you're cutting it um, too small. So she kept cutting it bigger and bigger and bigger, and I I wish I had an after picture. The only thing that I did for this patient was to change the size of the opening um, of it, and within two weeks, her skin was almost completely better. Um, the other thing that can happen, obviously, um, fungus and yeast like warm, moist areas. So what better than under an ostomy bag that has all those things plus bacteria? Uh, so the important thing to remember about this is that um, we have to use stoma powder instead of creams or ointments because it's going to interfere um, with the pouch adherence. Um this is, uh, I mentioned, because of the fact that pyoderma gangrenosum is more common in IBD patients, so you always want to be thinking about those zebras if something's not making sense, and it's getting worse, and it's not um, um, uh, systemic around the whole peristomal skin, and you see these violaceous borders. This is the time to definitely get um, dermatology involved, get your stoma nurse involved, and... Um, because this is often going to need a multidisciplinary approach and not just something that the stoma nurse is going to be fixed uh, able to fix. It often parallels intestinal IB, IB, IBD activity, so we often might need to do systemic therapies as well to get those lesions to heal. And then think about allergens. So if you see something like this that's it's exactly under where the pouch is, um, that's, not, that's not from a leak. So that's from some reaction to the patient's skin from that particular adhesive. So in this um, instance, you know, just changing the brand um, that they're using might fix it. Uh, just a couple more slides um, in terms of thinking about other complications. Um, there are a lot of complications with ileostomies if they have high output. Obviously, in our uh, patients were concerned about dehydration and nutrition and absorption anyways, even if they don't have an ostomy. So um, we really need to think about this and electrolyte imbalances and making sure that they're getting that proper nutrition. So we use all sorts of um, agents, fiber, motility, uh, anti-motility agents, tincture of opium. And then the other thing you have to think about is what they're getting for everything else that they might be taking medication for. So I always tell my patients, watch your output. Look for pills that are coming out whole. If they're taking an extended release allergy medication that's supposed to go over you know, 24 hours, that's not going to get absorbed in the two hours before it, you know, before it comes out in the back. So you have to think about these things when you're treating patients with um, ostomies. Uh, for colostomy patients, remember that they can get constipated too. So um, they may need to take stool softeners, laxatives, um, do enemas, and things like that because um, you know if they have a sigmoid colostomy, that's pretty much going through all the, the tract anyway. So they can have those same problems. And then, obviously, we're always concerned about blockages and obstructions. Um, The one thing to note about this is it's a little different than, let's say, our Crohn's disease patient that has a lot of strictures or when we think they might have an obstruction. You know, one of the first things that we do is make them MPO. Um, if we think that's the case. But if they have a stoma and we think it's just a blockage, we actually want them to stop eating, but we actually have them drink um, fluids and sometimes grape juice or even regular Coke or things like that will actually dissolve whatever uh, is um, causing the the blockage. I've even heard of some patients drinking meat tenderizer, which I don't recommend, but um, (laughs) some people say it works. (laughs) Uh, So anyways, a lot of times we can get um, the blockage to, to pass. Um, and then, just a few fun things to, um, to end in some of my travels as well. I was in uh, the airport in Tokyo, and it was really cool. They actually had a, a special bathroom that was equipped for ostomy patients. So, you can see the one in the middle has a little X in the left hand, um, uh, left lower quadrant, and um, it had this special sink and also had like an adult changing table. I spent all this time in this bathroom taking pictures, and people were probably like, What are you doing in there? Um, and then my last point, too, is a little bit more personal. Um, some of you might be, you know, wondering why am I up here talking about ostomies. I'm not a wound ostomy nurse, um, and, um, and I've, you know, just worked in colorectal surgery. But the reason is is because I'm actually a Crohn's disease patient, and I actually have an ostomy myself, which is why I'm so passionate about it. And so what I try to let my patients know and then also providers know is that the patients are super, super worried about having an ostomy. They, my GI doctors tried for about five or six years, kept telling me to do it. And I was like, nope, not doing it, not doing it. Even though I was medical <laughs> and I knew a lot of things, but I still said, no, I'm not doing it. And yeah. you know, when I finally had the surgery and I woke up within like the first day, I was just like, why didn't I do that sooner? You know. So there really is nothing that an ostomy patient can't do. Um, with an ostomy that they could do before, so all of these pictures I have an ostomy, um, run half marathons, did all sorts of things, and so I really want patients to know that um, you know it really can improve their quality of life. I get mad at my surgeons all the time because they will often say to medical students or other people, you know, no one wants an ostomy, and I'm like, no, that's actually not true. Like there are people <laughs> and that do want an ostomy and that are super thankful for it. So I've Pretty much corrected all of them from stopping that. (laughs) Um, But so, you know, encourage your patients that if you see a patient that's struggling and maybe they are um, recommending that and, you know, the patient is very, um, uh, you know, hesitant to do that, you know, get them to talk to other patients or get them to appropriate resources, and it can really help them a lot.